verses 20 through to 25. It is the story of Elijah confronting Ahab. And this particular part of that passage shows how, well, the priests of Baal um, were defeated. The pagan priests of Baal were defeated. And the God of Israel shines through victorious, partly because of the faithfulness of his prophet and the role of his prophet. Let's have a look. First, First Kings chapter 18, verses 20 onwards. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us, and let them choose one bull for themselves, and cut it in pieces, and lay it on the wood. But put no fire to it, and I will prepare the other bull, and lay it on the wood, and put no fire to it. And you will call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord, and the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, it is well spoken. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first, for you are many, and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given them, and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until nine, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they'd made. And at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is musing, or he is relieving himself, or he is on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. And all the people came near to him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took, Elijah took 12 stones, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench about the altar, as great as would contain two seers of seed. And he put the wood in order and cut the bull in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, Fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and onto the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench with water. At the, and at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and that I am your servant, and that I've done all these things at your word. Answer me. O Lord, 
Answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal, let not one of them escape. And they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook of Kishon and slaughtered them there. Interesting story. And of course you see in the next uh, passage following that how the rain comes. There hadn't been rain in the land of Israel for many a year. And Elijah causes this miracle to demonstrate that God can be trusted and that God's prophets can be trusted over and above the prophets of Baal. I share this story with you because it is, it is symbolic, if you like, of, the, of Israel today, the church today, that is on a journey, a journey which we, will believe, we believe will end in a promised land, that Jesus will come again and we will be taken to heaven. But on that journey, like Israel, the people of God had a choice whether to be faithful to the surrounding culture, to the, what we will describe as the prophets of Baal, or whether they chose choose to be faithful to the prophets of God. And in a few moments, um, I'm going to show you a PowerPoint this morning which will help us understand the role and function of a modern-day prophet. A hundred years ago this week, Ellen White died. The Seventh-day Adventist Church has always recognized the prophetic ministry of Ellen White, and I'll explain more about that in just a few minutes. But before we go into our sermon this morning, or our presentation this morning, Adriana, it is your turn. Would you like a children's story? Come on in. Where'd you go? Right. So you go all over the place, don't you? You went to Disney? That's very exciting. Beautiful. Now, when you go for a ride in the car, do you go for a long, 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 long journey? Does it take a long time? 
and you get warm in the car, right? When my boys Tom and Mark used to go on a long journey, as soon as they got in the car, they used to ask the question, are we there yet? Do you ever ask that question? Are we there yet? Because car journeys seem such a long journey. Even a ride to Belfast or Almar seems a long journey sometimes for... It's far away. And it takes not one minute, not five minutes, but sometimes it takes half an hour. And I don't know how you got to Disney, but... Uh, but it when it's 50 miles, that's a very long journey. Yeah. And so, so, so we always ask the question, are we there yet? And what does mummy or daddy sometimes say? Sometimes Lots of time. Lots of time. And mummy or daddy in the front will say, be patient, we're nearly there. Is that right? Now, did you say sometimes that when you're in the car, you look at the clouds? Yes. Did you say that? Now, when you look at the clouds, what do you think? Okay. Now, I know something about the clouds. The Bible says about the clouds, right? When you look at the clouds... Yes. <laughs> Tell me more about Disney. Disney was exciting, wasn't it? It's a long way to France. Anyway, back to looking at the window in the car, right? Back to looking. Now, looking at the window of a car, you can see the sky, right? And you can sometimes see the clouds. And where we live, there's an awful lot of clouds, unfortunately. Now, the Bible says that one day, when you and I look at the clouds, right? One day, Jesus is going to come back through those clouds. And he's going to come and be with us. You and I don't know when that will happen. He's going to come, and everybody on the earth will see him. You don't see him at the moment, but one day you will. Yes, that's right. You have a very good mum and a very good Sabbath school teacher. He is in our hearts. That's right. So Jesus is here right now, right? But we can, and he's in our hearts and we can't see him. Is that right? We can't see him. But he's here. One day... That's right. And one day, not only is he going to be in our hearts, but we are also going to see him with our eyes. Not just... Thank you very much. <laughs> That's right. Well, one day, Jesus is going to come back again, and everybody is going to see him, and when, they, when he comes, everybody's also going to have a, a smile on their face, and uh, we are going to be uh, changed. See, you know, some of us look old right now with funny faces, Right? Well, Jesus is going to come and change us and make us all young and, um, young and strong and, and, and lively again, just like your good self. Now, sometimes for, for older people like me, 
I'm like you when you get in the car. Are we there yet? Has Jesus come back yet? And we wait for it, and it seems as though we're waiting a long time. But the good news is, sometimes on this journey, when we say, are we there yet, and we're very young, we fall asleep, and the next thing we know, we wake up, and we are there. And Jesus will come again. And you, and you know, if Jesus makes a promise, he keeps it. Yes. It's called going all over the place. Yes, that's nice. Right. Now, will you promise me something? That you will all, when you grow up, when you become four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten years old and older, you will always keep looking in the clouds and hoping and believing that Jesus is coming soon. Will you do that? And I know that your mummy and your Sabbath school teacher will always help you to understand that. Good. What song do you sing? Do you know? We have a little prayer. Dear Jesus, you love adults, you love children, and you love Adriana. I pray that you will help her in her daily life. Thank you for her faith and trust in you. Thank you for her mom and for her Sabbath school teachers who, who love her and care for her and are trying to share with her uh, the truth about you and what you're really like and keep in her heart the joy of your soon return. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Have a nice Sabbath. What's next? Is that it? Oh, the challenge and the joy of telling a story to some children. But uh, we can sing again, uh, talking about the land that's far away. There is a land that is fairer than day. 428. There's a land that is fairer than day And the day prepared For the Father waits over the way To prepare us a better than fair In the sweet by and by Don't your tie Wait, wait, wait so I'm just going to signal to you to just switch over, yeah? Okay, you can switch the lights off. 
Good morning once again and welcome to, to you and to um, our visitors. Um, it's been my privilege over the last week with my wife Marcy to attend the general conference of the Seventh-day Adventist Church where the whole church family comes together. The whole world church comes together. We met in San Antonio, Texas. There were 2,500 delegates and last Sabbath there were about 60,000 people in the auditorium which gives a great sense of belonging. Um, I, Mark used the phrase little flock a few minutes ago. And, of course, globally, in terms of uh, the number of Seventh-day Adventists around the globe, there are about 16 million, which isn't that significant when you, significant when you think there are um, 10 billion people on planet Earth. However, it's good to be together. The church has some business to conduct, which I'm sure most of you know about. To, to revise some of its uh, fundamental beliefs. And, of course, the, the, the significant discussion was whether the church was going to allow um, uh, the ordination of women to ministry. And, of course, the vote said, uh, the, the delegates said, uh, by a clear majority, no, we are not. And uh, some were disappointed, some were happy, and that's the nature of the church. And the Adventist church is not the first church on planet Earth to go through that process. Um, now, you may say, why, why is the Adventist Church in particular uh, resistant to the ordination of women? And one of the reasons, one of the core reasons why, is because Adventists as a whole take what is described as a plain reading of Scripture. Now, I want you to, to note those words, a plain reading of Scripture. The idea being that when you come to Scripture, when you and I come to Scripture... We read what we see and what is there. We allow the Bible to, to, to understand itself, to contextualize itself. If you like, we, if God says it, that settles it, because this is an inspired word. And, as I sh- and I'll come back to that in a moment, because this morning I want to take a few moments to help us understand 
how, to under, how we understand Scripture. What is the role and function of Scripture? What happens when we try to read Scripture? What happens when, when the Adventist, Seventh-day Adventist Church says and believes in a prophetic ministry of Ellen White? Now, I, it's my conviction or my belief that probably in the last 10 to 15 years here in this particular church and in many Seventh-day Adventist churches, there have been very few presentations or sermons about the role and function of Ellen White. So today is a teaching ministry, if you like. If, if Ellen White is, is someone you've come across for the first time this morning, um, I, I apologize and I trust that you will get a true perspective of how the Seventh-day Adventist Church regards her ministry. Um, I want to reassure you that in no way would we ever venerate a person, a human person. In no way are we trying to put a person on a pedestal, if you like, like these flowers are on a pedestal. That is not the role and function. But Seventh-day Adventists believe that in the formation of the Advent movement, the Seventh-day Adventist Church, Ellen White had a specific and particular role in guiding that church to where it should be. I can say two convictions about her ministry this morning which have prevented the church going off in one direction or another. The first conviction that we can say is that if it was not for her ministry and her guiding influence on the church, you would find that the Seventh-day Adventist Church would have gone down the road of um, many other mainline denominations in as much as the Word of God, the Word of Scripture, would have had, if you like, second place. Um, for example, and I'm not, I'm not judging or um, labelling any particular denomination, but there are many, many denominations today that, for example, um, exist... But, but, have, but have very little trust or faith in Scripture. So, if, if, you, if you, for example, you take um, the Anglican community in the UK, the, the, the issues they regard as serious in Scripture are mainly social and economic issues. So the first time an archbishop speaks, he will probably talk about economics and the relationship of the church to economics or relationship of the church to social policy or, or another matters. Now, please do not get me wrong. Applying scripture to how we uh, govern the country and how we have fair and just economics is important. Taking scripture and applying it to how um, we legislate for social issues is important. Do not get me wrong. There is a social ethic there which guides how we treat people with dignity and respect. But there is something that has been lost in that, and that is the central salvific, meth salvific method, the good news of the gospel, that can sometimes get lost. The role and function of scripture is to lead me and you to God, simply not to be an ethical guide or an ethical tool for living today. It's how to connect me with God. The other uh, um, support value of the prophetic ministry of Ellen White, in particular in steering the Seventh-day Adventist Church, is stopping it or preventing it from going off into what I will call the signs and wonders movement. Um, the signs and wonders movement is a, is, an, is a very attractive movement in Christianity today. And many people are flocking towards it. If we, if we can see 
uh, if we can see signs manifested in our church through, through healing and through uh, speaking in tongues and through being what can be described as slain in the spirit, um, that to many, many people, particularly here in Northern Ireland, is becoming one of the fastest growing movements in this, in this country. Because people are attracted to it. There's something fresh and there's something wonderful about it. And the, and the Seventh-day Adventist Church, through the ministry of Ellen White, said, well, hang on a minute. Are you sure that's what uh, the true prophetic gift is all about? So, a uh, hundred years ago this week, Ellen White died. Ellen White died. And her uh, prevailing uh, value philosophy, we have this uh, little... Uh, thing come in the middle of the screen again, Mark. Don't, is, that, is that going to be there forever? It will go away. I'm very pleased to hear it. Can we go back to the first um, thing? Um, I can't read it without uh, that being there. Can we, can we get rid of it? Because I need to read what's on the screen. If we can. Thank you. It says check the airflow. I'm not sure what that means. Somebody has to get up a ladder. Oh, is that right? Okay. Okay. So, so <laughs> try one more time. If not, we will give up on this because the, the, the PowerPoint won't work. If uh... Just sit there and hold the button for about a few minutes, yeah? <laughs> okay, so, so in that, in, uh, one of her last statements to the Seventh Adventist Church was, I recommend to you, dear reader, the word of God as the rule of your faith and practice. By that word, we are to be judged. God has in that word promised to give visions in the last days, not for a new rule of faith, but for the comfort of his people and to correct those who err from Bible truth. So one of the first principles that I understand from that statement that she has given is, one, Seventh-day Adventist Christians believe passionately that we are living in the last days. We believe that Jesus is coming again soon. One of the most wonderful experiences of being uh, in San Antonio, Texas last week was, was to be with uh, the group of believers who believe passionately that Jesus is coming again soon. That was the theme of the, of the whole week together. We do our church business, but we're doing it in the context that Jesus is coming again soon. And I'm thrilled and excited and and, and gratified that the Seventh-day Adventist Church hasn't lost that value. I don't believe there is any reason, any reason for the existence of the Seventh-day Adventist Church uh, to exist other than to remind people that the great, God of, the great God who sent Jesus to the cross of Calvary and who rose again and who is now in heaven uh, at the right hand of God, as all Christians believe, also promised in John 14 that if I go away to repair a place, I will come back again. Next slide. 
Um, the Advent movement grew out in the early eight, grew out of the Methodist movement in the early 1840s, and it started with a fellow called William Miller, who went around uh, New England preaching that, that Jesus would come again soon. Now Miller, we must note, took a plain reading of Scripture. Okay, there are strengths in taking a plain re- reading of Scripture. There are also weaknesses in taking a plain reading of Scripture, as we shall see. William Miller went around in, 18, in the 1830s uh, studying the books of uh, uh, Daniel and Revelation and other parts of Scripture, and he came to the conclusion, erroneously, that Jesus would come again in, in 1844. He was a Methodist and so was Ellen White, a Methodist, and they came out of the Methodist movement. And, of course, he gained great popularity. He gained hundreds of thousands of followers. There was an incredible sense of hope. He was a leader who was saying that uh, whatever we experienced uh, as settlers in New England, um, he was promising us something even greater. And, of course, on October the 22nd, next slide, in 1844, um, they all gathered on a rock in New England. We call it Ascension Rock. And they all hoped that Jesus would have come again that day. Next slide. And here's a picture of Ascension Rock uh, in New, New England. And they all became incredibly disappointed. I mean, you and I cannot understand for one moment the, the grief process. 19th century Adventists in the Millerite movement went through. An incredible grief process. If you can imagine, it's from September to October 18, in the 1840s, 1844. They sold up everything. They closed their businesses. They said, they said goodbye to friends and family. They, they just, just lost it, if you like. And they just said, okay, Jesus is coming back. Someone, uh, William Miller, we trust him. We trust this leader. He has... We believe he's looked at Scripture carefully. And he's given us hope. We've looked at Scripture too. We've, they came to the same erroneous, same erroneous answer, that he, conclusion that he came to. And as a result, they were bitterly, bitterly, bitterly disappointed. You think you, st- you stand on that rock and you think it's actually going to be the la- Earth's last day of history. That's how serious it is. And they had expected, just to go to the previous slide for a minute, they had expected that that night they would see Jesus come again, return as he had promised in Scripture. And of course the early Adventist movement made a fatal mistake on that. And after the great disappointment of 1844, after standing on Ascension Rock, um, they had to regroup. They had to regroup. The early Adventist believers had to regroup. And one of, the th- one of the valuable lessons they learned is we will never, ever put a date, put a timetable to the date when Jesus will come again. We will never, ever do that again. We have learned from that lesson. By the way, the, the early Advent movement was um, formed before the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Let's be clear about that. The Seventh-day Adventist Church was not formed until 1860 and came out of the Millerite Adventist movement in New England in the 1840s. One of the formative uh, people who, ke- who, who were there with Miller at that time was Ellen White. And when the Adventist church says it accepts and believes in the prophetic ministry of Ellen White, 
we're dealing with a young, we're dealing with an individual who had a lifespan of 85 to 90 years, if I remember correctly. I can't remember the precise uh, number of years she lived. But when you see pictures of her, I ask you the question, what picture do you have? Do you see a young person in her 20s sharing scripture? Do you see a person in her 60s? Next slide. Do you see a person in her 80s? Or do you see a person um, really old age? That's in 1905. That is actually a a photochromic uh, camera film. That's not just a painting. And so you have this Victorian lady, if you like, a young person growing up in, 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 in uh, mid-America who travelled extensively around America, who wrote, as I shall share with you, she wrote 50,000 pages of manuscript, 40 books, 5,000 periodical articles. She's the most translated woman writer in the entire history of literature and the most translated American author of either gender. Her writings cover a broad range of subjects, including religion, education, social relationships, evangelism, prophecy, publishing, nutrition, and management. Her life-changing masterpiece on successful Christian living is called Steps to Christ, which Mart has invited us to, to, to read uh, by signing up to um, a certain email that comes through our letterbox every week. And Adventists believe that Ellen White was more than a gifted writer. They believe she was appointed by God as a special messenger to draw the world's attention to the Holy Scriptures to help prepare people for Christ's second advent. From the time she was 17 years old until she she died 70 years later, God gave her approximately 2,000 visions or or dreams. Now, let me stop there and clarify. Every movement has its leader to whom it, or founder, who it regards as with great significance. So, for example, if you're, if you're a believer in the Salvation Army, you will um, give a lot of credit for the, for, for the leadership of William Booth, William and Catherine Booth. They're the founders of the Salvation Army, and, of course, what they say has always had a certain credibility about the way the Salvation Army should be run. If you are, if you are a Baptist, William Carey is of great significance to you and, and the, 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 the way the movement goes. And so every movement has, its, um, has had its leader and founders, which, which people regard as special and significant. However, Seventh-day Adventists are going one step further and saying, well, actually, Ellen White had a prophetic, prophetic gift uh, because she received uh, dreams and she received visions. Now, it's all very well saying, you know, she had dreams and visions, and, you know, t- who, how do you gain authority? How, how, do you re- how can you regard that as credible? Well, next slide. Um, uh, her dreams and visions have to be put against that of Scripture. Now, before I go to explain the dreams and visions, let me remind you what, a pl- what the purpose of a plain reading of Scripture um, and, and this has helped the Seventh-day Adventist Church significantly in its position in, in, in the religious movements. So when you and I come to Scripture, a plain reading of Scripture serves, if you like, as a hearing aid. And hearing aid ensuring that the change in values and customs of secular society will never muffle the voice of God and His Spirit. 
We need that. If you don't have a plain reading of Scripture, there is the danger that simply we can say, well, can you trust the Bible? Can, is it inspired? Does God still speak? Um, surely uh, Scripture was meant for, for people of, of, of past times or previous times. We don't really need to take it seriously, do we? Well, God's Word, we believe, is for all times. God's Word is inspired for all times. Note the word, all times. God, our God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. I think most of us would agree with that. Next slide. At the same time, I want to share with you this morning that there is a very big difference between a biblical fact and a biblical truth. Let me explain. In Romans, Paul talks about, Paul mentions Psalm 69, verse 9. And he says there, can we, uh, we've got to check the airflow again, I see, Mark. All right. He says there in Psalm 69, verse, ta- verse 9, that the f- take it, what he gets out of Psalm 69, verse 9, is that the first purpose of Scripture is contemporary. So, so when God spoke through the prophets, God spoke to the psalmist, when God spoke to Paul, and they wrote it down, the first application of that was to the people of his time. Whenever you and I approach Scripture... The first question is, we say, well, well, when God wrote the epistles to the Romans, what was his intention of speaking to those people? Sure, we make an application to our life, but he wrote it for the people of that time first of all. It was written in the past, and it was written to a certain group of people, yet it is to, to also teach us. Secondly, it has an inclusive value. Everything was written for us, but not everything is, is of equal value. So every word in Scripture doesn't carry the same weight as another word. So, for example, there, is, there are certain laws in Leviticus that were written down for a certain people in a certain time. The laws in Leviticus don't automatically carry across to our lifetime today. All right, Because we live under, if you like, a new covenant. We live under the everlasting covenant, the, the, the New Testament covenant of Jesus. The old Levitical laws, the sacrificial laws, do not apply to us today. So not every... They were written for us, but not all of equal value. The third principle is that Scripture has a Christ-centered focus. If you like, uh, the, the disciples on the road to Emmaus had their eyes opened by Jesus and... and he revealed to them what the scriptures, what the Old Testament scriptures said about him. The purpose, the whole purpose of the Old Testament is to lead God's people to understand who Jesus is. Airflow problem again. The fourth principle is its practical purpose. It's for encouragement. It's to give you and us guidance on our journey. It's to give us hope, to help keep us going. Uh, it is to help us connect with God through prayer, to keep us going, to, to, to give us hope. Jesus said, let not your hearts be troubled. I will come again. I am going to prepare a place for you. So scripture comforts you and helps you. You will never be alone. Jeremiah 31.3, see I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. 
And then fifthly, scriptures have a divine message. It is the living voice of God himself who continues to speak through what he has spoken. So once God spoke, men of God wrote it down as they were impressed, and that had a, that had a serious impression on the people of their day. But it's re- been recorded, and Scripture still speaks to us today, without a shadow of a doubt. And I don't think anybody would question that. Next slide. So, so when you and I come to Scripture... Yes, while we believe in a plain reading of Scripture, there are certain principles for understanding Scripture. So first of all, when we want to understand Scripture, make a plan about how you're going to study it. Choose a Bible that you find easy to read. Uh, For example, if English is your second language, I certainly wouldn't choose reading a King James Version of Scripture. That is a very hard and difficult version of English to, to understand. Choose your Bible study tools, a concordance, a Bible dictionary, a, a Bible atlas even. Because, you know, when you're, when you're reading Old Testament scripture, to have a Bible atlas by your side will really help the story of Elijah and Ahab come alive. Where was Israel? Where was Judah? Where is the northern kingdom? Where is Egypt? That's helpful. And then a Bible commentary. And as you and I come to scripture, we come with, with a humble heart, We come with prayer, open hearts and open minds, which says, what is your truth for me today? What do you want want me to understand from your word? How can I know Christ more fully through this story? In fact, one way of studying scripture is to ask three, three simple questions. When you read a passage of scripture, ask yourself the question, what does this, what does this scripture say about God? What does it say about me? And what must I do as a result? Allow scriptures to interpret itself. And that, that, is a, that is a very important principle. Let scripture speak. If there's one statement of scripture in the book of Genesis and another in the book of Revelation, try and compare and, let, and try and understand the other from scripture rather than going to an external source in the first place. Context is important. Um, so, for example, my favourite one is where men in the Old Testament were, were, were told to wear beards. You were not allowed to shave. And it looks as though Mart is the only person who adheres to that rule. Okay? Now, you know, that is not a biblical rule that is permanent and exclusive for all time. Um, most of us would be, according to Old Testament scripture, would be... Um, Ignoring the will of God, if you like, because most of us wear clothing that has more than one um, fibre. Thank you. So, so context is important. Pay attention to context and avoid building a doctrine on a single verse. So a lot of my uh, evangelical friends, a lot of my evangelical friends have a belief that um, uh, I will be stood here and Villamine will be stood here as well, and somehow I'm going to be raptured and taken off into the air. Now, Jesus did speak about one man staying and another man going, and somehow some people somewhere in the evangelical world have built a whole doctrine and belief system based around that. Whereas, if you look at the whole of Scripture, it says when Jesus comes, it will not be one man or one person going. It'll be him coming in the clouds of glory, and every eye shall see him. 
Use common sense as you study. Don't take your time. Don't read or study in haste. And, of course, there are many methods of Bible study. Next slide. Now, Seventh-day Adventists believe in the gift of prophecy and say that the Scriptures testify that one of the, one, one of the gifts of the Spirit is prophecy. This gift is an identifying mark of the remnant church, and we believe it was manifested in the ministry of Ellen G. White. Her writings speak with prophetic authority and provide comfort, guidance, instruction, and correction to the church. They also make it clear that the Bible is the standard by which all testing and all teaching and experience must be tested. And that's important. And there are some biblical texts basically underneath, which basically, say, which basically take from Scripture the value that the prophet is to be listened to. So there were prophets in the Old Testament. And the value is that when, is, when the Israel, when the people of Israel listened to the prophets... They prospered. When they listened to the kings, they went on a downward spiral. And so the message from God to the people of Israel was, trust the prophets and you'll prosper. Trust the kings and you'll go astray. Now the purpose of the prophets was to stop Israel going astray. Israel as God's people always had this sort of, uh, dare I say, this is too emotive a word, and I'm using it carefully, almost a schizophrenic relationship with God. One day they were for him, the next day they weren't. One day God was the greatest uh, that they could ever imagine and they worshipped him with absolute sincerity and passion. The next day they were going into foreign lands and worshipping the gods of Baal. They were a bit wishy-washy, if you like. And that was the story we looked at this morning. People trusted the prophets of Baal rather than one true God. And Elijah the prophet, who could be seen as a miserable old goat, and prophets were often seen as miserable, they were often seen as counterculture, they were often seen as pushing against the grain. God had to use these people in order to connect with his people to bring them back to himself. And so Seventh-day Adventists believe that the, the, the ministry of Ellen White has been given for a specific purpose to, go, to guide God's church at a certain period in time. Now, Adventists don't say that with any arrogance, and when they say God's church, they mean, yes, a certain denomination, but they believe all believers who believe in the faith of Jesus. So it's not just one denomination. But God has given the ministry of Ellen White to guide this church to the, end of, to the end of time. So whereas the Bible, if you put it like this, whereas Scripture is inspired for all time, the writings and, te- writings and teachings of Ellen White may be described as for the end time. If you get nothing out of what we share today is, to share to, if you get nothing else out of what we share today is, Adventists by the very term Seventh-day Adventists, believe passionately that we are living in the end of time and that Jesus is going to return soon. Next slide, please. And so these are the tests of a prophet. First John chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, say the following. You must know this about the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come of the flesh is of 
God. So the first thing a prophet, if they're going to claim to be a prophet, is they must confess that Jesus is Lord. The second thing they have to do is found in Isaiah chapter 8 and verse 20, which says, To the law and to the testimony, if they speak not according to his word, it is because there is no light in him. So whatever a prophet says, then or now, that person must be able to share what they share, and it must be in harmony with God's word. The prophet cannot say something that's out of kilter or out of sync with scripture. No point, no purpose. That, I would, uh, we would argue, is a false prophet. Again, in the charismatic movement today, there is a tendency for anybody sat in church, if you like, in a congregation, to simply stand up and say, God has spoken to me. Now, I'm not denying that God can't speak audibly to, to any one of us. But if Mr. or Mrs. Smith does stand up and say, God has spoken to me, Essentially, what has been said has to be tested according to Scripture. Because if it's not the case that it's not tested according to Scripture, then a church or a group can go off in any direction. The third test of the prophet is that um, he or she must exhibit the fruits of the Spirit. Joy, peace, long-suffering. What is the nature of that person? Do they exhibit the example of... Of Jesus. Let's actually have a look for just a moment at Matthew chapter 17, sorry, Matthew chapter 7, verses 15 and 20. Matthew 7, verses 15 and 20. Matthew 7 says the following Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. And then verse 20. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. And Jeremiah 28 verse 19, basically, after we check the airflow, once again, says that if you are going to have, if a prophet is going to make a statement or is going to see into the future, then its, then it, its, its value and its virtue must be tested to see whether those prophecies come true. If someone says that something's going to happen and it doesn't come through, that is a clear picture, clear indication that that person is a false prophet. Now, we're still struggling with the airflow, by the way. It's gone. Okay, good news. Next slide. What happens to you and me when we come to approach the writings of Ellen White? We said a few moments ago she wrote hundreds of thousands of words, many articles, many publications, and she's written volumes. And you can download an app... And if you started reading it today, it would probably take you about two or three years to read every single word that she's said. And one of the challenges for 21st century Christians is time. We just haven't got the time. And one of the challenges for anybody when they read something from Scripture or from anywhere else, specifically if it it has behind it the label prophetic, we're saying, well, how do you accept that prophetic word? And just like scripture, there are certain principles for interpreting what Ellen White wrote. She lived in the 19th century. She lived in, North, in, in, in New England, North America. She lived in a different culture, in a different context, a different place. And so one of the challenges for 
for 21st century Christians, 21st century Adventists, is to apply what she said. If you've never read any of her writings, probably the first place to start is the little book called Steps to Christ. And one of her major works is called The Great Controversy. Now, that's a 500-page book that uh, is basically about the history of the Christian church and the conflict that has taken place in the history of the Christian church uh, over the last 2,000 years, whereas it started in the first century as a movement faithful and true to, to God. And over the centuries, the true Christianity, true apostolic Christianity, came distorted. You know that story, you know, and you know the key players in it. You know the story of Martin Luther, you know the story of Calvin, you know the, all the story of all these uh, people in, 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 in Christian history who stood up for truth and, for, and, for the, and wouldn't, let the lamp, wouldn't let the light of God go out. And they stood up for the truth about God, Martin Luther in particular, saying you do not need to, to earn your salvation it is the true and free gift of God, salvation by grace through faith alone. And he kept that candle um, uh, bl- uh, lit all through, those, through, those, uh, through the medieval dark ages. And so there are certain principles for correctly interpreting the writings of Ellen White. I won't go through every one, but let's simply uh, look at a few, highlight a few. First of all, study all the inf- available information on a t- on topic and avoid extreme interpretations. Uh, again, Ellen White lived in a time of the 19th century where every, applica- where every interpretation and application is simply not relevant to us today. Um, just the way she travelled, uh, tra- travelled across North America. It's very interesting how she would travel across North America by train. And, of course, in those days, there was no uh, air conditioning. Now, Michael has recently travelled all across North America by train, in, in luxury trains with wonderful air conditioning. Well, well Ellen White uh, was very, very conscious about um, enjoying fresh air. In the 19th century, the availability of fresh, pure, clean air uh, in industrial cities in particular was, was pretty appalling. And she was very conscious about enjoying fresh air but she would also travel by train and of course I'm interested by train so I've picked up on this one seriously trains in those days were run by steam engines Uh, in America uh, the steam engine was uh, heated by wood a wood burner and she'd travel in these carriages now we experienced the intense heat of Texas last week and it is intense most of us would wilt in in that heat and so here she is on this train middle of summer she has a choice. If she opens the window, she's actually going to experience the fumes of the, of the steam engine and smoke everywhere. If she keeps the windows up without air conditioning, they're basically going to, well, not burn, but absolutely stifle. It was a horrible experience for her. And so I'm just, I just share that insight as, as, as an insight into her world, which is very different from our world. And so when you, when you take a teaching, when you take a piece of guidance, you do have to apply it and contextualize it. So, for example, the other classical illustration is that uh, Ellen White says that riding a bicycle is almost an obscene thing to do. Now, how would you say that riding a bicycle is an obscene action? Now, she wrote that in the 1880s. 
And riding a bicycle in the 1880s, uh, this new bicycle craze came, on the, came in the world, and a bicycle basically costs the equivalent to what it would cost a port to purchase a Porsche car today. It was a brand new invention. It was something exciting. People were throwing their money into it, and they were getting very excited about the invention of the bicycle, and it was the ultimate status symbol. And she saw that people were going nuts and crazy about it. So again, another example of context. One of the things we must never do that she says we never do is, is, to, is to make anything she says prove scripture or to prove a point. As I said at the very beginning and will say at the very end, the purpose of her writings was to, was to encourage you and me to get into scripture, to appreciate and trust the word of God more. That's the role of the prophet. That was the role of the prophet in biblical times, not to draw attention to themselves, but to, but to re- return the people of God back to God if you like, in his teachings. Next, next uh, slide. Now, one of, the, one of the principles that often comes across is that because a prophet says something, that's it, that settles it, that is an absolute, and they never change their mind. Well, I showed you some pictures of Ellen White uh, through her life, from age 15 right through to about 85, earlier. Four different pictures. And in in the 1870s, the Advent movement wanted to describe their experience, their journey, if you like, through through art. And they drew a picture. And I don't know what you can see here, but there's the tree of life in the centre of the picture. There's the 12 disciples around the Last Supper at the right-hand side. Over on the left-hand side, there's a picture of the angel in Eden... And, of course, underneath the tree, you can see the Ten Commandments, the rule for living. You can see that, right? And you can see the cross there as well. Now, that was published by a fellow called M.J. Kellogg uh, in 1873, part of the Advent movement in those days. And uh, Ellen White's husband, James White, published it. And then, about 30 years later... They wanted to paint the picture again. Again, through the influence of Ellen White. Next picture, please. It's called, it was called The Way of Life. So, so first of all, I'm trying to emphasize that in this picture, the law of God was seen as central. Absolutely central. Again, the, the early Advent movement, the, the only two um, values at the heart of the Advent movement are this. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and have the faith of Jesus. It's based on the text in Revelation chapter uh, 17. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and have the faith of Jesus. And early Adventists had great emphasis on the law of God. Of course, they took a plain reading of Scripture and they saw that, of course, the first day of the week is not the Sabbath, but is the seventh day. And you know that story as well as I do. However, come to 1880, next slide, yeah, 1880, that picture was repainted. If you like, James White had a burden to repaint that picture. Notice how the picture has changed. The law of God is right there in the background. No one's dismissing it. No one's pushing it away. No one's saying it's not valid or or, or, or recognized anymore. But look what shines out from the center. Jesus and the cross of Christ. I share it with you to demolish a myth to demolish a myth that a prophet of God is rigid. 
never changed his, his or her mind, never ever has a development of faith and matures in their faith. But the truth is, prophets of God, just as you and I, develop and mature in our faith. We grow. And, one of, and that principle, actually, is one of the principles that Ellen White encourages you, you and I to do more than anything, is to grow and mature in our faith, like the Apostle Paul. It is my prayer that you will appreciate how bigger and how greater and how wider and how more wonderful God is than you can, I can ever imagine. Don't just stay as baby Christians. Grow in your Christian experience. And so here we are where Christ, next slide, is the centre of our faith, the cross of Jesus. If it wasn't for the cross of Jesus, anything else I've said today, anything else that Seventh-day Adventists believe would be absolutely useless and irrelevant. It's all because of what Jesus did on Calvary. If you want to look at an extended work of how um, Ellen White explains the story of Jesus on Calvary, her epic work, of course, is The Desire of Ages. Next slide, please. In the 1980s, Harold, uh, Alfred Lee repainted that picture again, uh, repainted the picture of the Advent movement, and, of course, he's made Jesus even more of the centre, and, of course, portrays over here on the right-hand side the work of Christians today in their humanitarian work around the world, all in the name of Christ. Next slide. Just last night in the Adventist Review, this statement was published. Gerald, uh, Gerard Klingbeil is a, is a former teacher who's taught around the world in Germany and Peru, and he says the following, My students loved, students loved Ellen White, Yet many times as we discussed difficult issues in scripture and struggled with challenging biblical texts, I needed to remind them that Ellen White's statements were not meant to clinch an argument or end a conversation. You will sometimes hear in a Sabbath school class or in a discussion, Ellen White says, and sometimes that ends the conversation. And of course he's saying, that's not what it's meant to do. Rather they were meant to move us collectively and individually, closer to the greater light in the incarnate and written word. They help us grasp the bigger context, part of an Adventist worldview that looks at history not as a sequence of random events, but as part of an epic struggle between light and darkness, good and evil, God and Satan. And I think that's a very good summary of, of her purpose and function. Next slide, please. And so here's the challenge for you and me as we come to the end. There is always a challenge for humans when they recognize and respect somebody to make them the final authority. So I, I know a little bit about the Salvation Army. And in the Salvation Army movement, um, often, if you're a leader in that movement or if you want to make a decision you will always say, well, what would William Booth say? It's just natural. Or in the Baptist movement, are we staying faithful to the teachings and followings of William Carey? Is this what he would have wanted for the Baptist movement? As good as that is, whether they are prophetic or not, it is the wrong thing to do. Because the real question is, what does Scripture say? 
What does Scripture say on the matter? Secondly, do we listen to her wisdom from the Lord for his, for, for his end-time people? And sometimes we're tempted to pick and mix like we do at the pick and mix stall at Tesco. Elijah said, how long will you, you know, choose between two opinions? We, if, the, if, if the Seventh Adventist Church is going to claim that uh, Ellen White has the gift of prophecy, then it has a responsibility to take that seriously. Thirdly, do we struggle knowing where to start reading a council due to the sheer volume of writings? We live in a, a non-literary age. People are more visual than literary these days. And what do we do? And I think one of the best things to do is to go to um, revivebyhisword.org and have them come into your mailbox or see them on Facebook in little bits and pieces and you'll begin to get a picture. Is separation of time and space a problem? We live in the instant. Some of us ask, who are younger, well, what relevance does 10 years ago or what relevance does 30 years ago? One of the most fascinating uh, things I saw at the general conference session was um, there was an old United Kingdom church leader. His name was Pastor Perry. He's an Afro-Caribbean fellow, and he used to serve the church here in the UK. And uh, he would stand up during discussions at the general conference session like a sort of Nelson Mandela full of wisdom, full of, full of uh, the, the, the years of experience that he has on his shoulders and able to say things frankly and freely based on his experience without the fear of being politically correct. And I wonder if sometimes we, 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 the next generation, if you like, doesn't have the respect for age and wisdom that perhaps we should have. We don't feel that what people have to say from time ago has relevance or, or, is a, or, 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 or is significant today. And then fifthly, there is spiritual pride. None of us like being told what to do. None of us like being given directives. Go and do. Jesus said, go and do likewise. If you have a lot of wealth, well, do something with it. Because if you don't do something useful with it, it can be an impediment to you and the kingdom of God, for example. And so we don't like instructions because someone is telling us what to do. And that's about submission. Am I willing to follow the commands of Jesus? And then fifthly, there is spiritual pride. You know, I don't want someone telling me what to do. It's all about me. What right or authority does anybody have to tell me what to do? It's my life, and I'll do it my way. And of course, as you and I know, that is directly contrary to the spirit of the Christian gospel. Last but one's a few last few slides. How long will you go limping between two different opinions, said Elijah. If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is, fo is follow him. The purpose of a prophet was to lead us back to God, to choose God's way. Final few slides, next slide. This, uh, what do we do with a contemporary prophet? There is a, is a very old lady. She must be in her 80s there. I think she's, that was taken in 1905. She's with a group of people uh, at her home in California. Uh, can a little old lady have anything significant to say to, to the 21st century? Was she true? Was she false? It is for you and I to, to determine. But I believe that she, she was used by God to steer 
the remnant church. Here's the Bible inspired for all time, Ellen White inspired for the end time. And when you say inspired, we mean that God spoke through her. Next slide. Her role is to draw us to Jesus, the Lamb of God. No other role, only ever to draw us closer to Jesus, who is our Messiah, who is the one in whom we put ultimate trust. Next slide. It is when we say that she was inspired for the end times, the reality is that as we get closer to Jesus' return, there are going to be some stormy waters ahead. Just look at the six o'clock news. It's as simple as that. One day you think you're safe, the next day you're not. Whether it's economically, socially, politically, or even personal security. What is it that makes a madman go go into a shop in Chattanooga uh, yesterday and just eliminate people. What, what sort of world do we live in? And you know that story. Next slide. The Advent hope is that one day, through those clouds, Jesus is going to return today. Amen. And I hope that you will uh, accept that from Scripture, that it, is, that it burns within you, and that as we do go through some stormy tri- times here, here on earth, We will not simply survive, but we will thrive. And the purpose of Ellen White's ministry is to help us thrive during those times. Your hope and my hope, last slide, is that Jesus is coming again soon. And I trust that as you and I trust Scripture, if I've gone to prepare a place for you, I will come again, will resonate true in your heart as it does in mine. Amen.